as an entrepreneur, I think it's your duty to have you know that vision, stick with the vision, but you have to be willing to pivot in everything else. Hey, my name is Felix Tia. I'm the host of Shopify Masters, a weekly podcast powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. Each week, we invite entrepreneurs like you to share what they've learned growing successful e-commerce businesses. In this episode, you'll learn, do you really need to fly to China to meet with manufacturers? Why Facebook might drive low quality leads and how to improve the quality of your leads? And how you know when to pivot your business and what happens when you do? Today, I'm joined by Dylan Jacob from Brewmate. Brewmate is on a mission to put an end to boring drinkware one step at a time and earn $21 million in sales last year. And we started in 2016 and based out of Denver, Colorado. Welcome, Dylan. Hey, Felix. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, so you mentioned that you started Brewmate out of necessity. So what was the problem that you were facing? So I had just turned 21, um, and I just noticed this reoccurring trend everywhere I went, whether it was on the boat or tailgating. Uh, that a my beer constantly got warm and then that everyone else's beer was getting warm as well but rather than trying to figure out how to keep it cold people were just throwing away the beer or leaving it on the side um, and then going and grabbing another one out of the cooler so at the end of the day when we were all cleaning up you would find like 20 30 beers that were like half drink and i just thought there had to be a better way to do this um and I was just sick and tired. Like I drink 16 ounce beers. The majority of them are craft beers and they usually come in 16 ounce cans. And when you're out tailgating in 80, 90 degree heat, it's almost impossible to keep it cold um, until the last drop. So you almost always waste the the last, you know, quarter or half of your beer. Um, and so I kind of set out to put an end to that. I looked for solutions that were currently on the market. I didn't see anything specifically for the drinks that I uh, drank. I started talking with other people to see what their pain points were and if they were experiencing the same thing. You know, I had already noticed that people were, but I wanted their feedback. And um, they kind of echoed that. But then I found out that it wasn't just beer. Like people were having issues with their cocktails. They're having issues with wine. They're having issues with like glass free zones. So they couldn't take, um, you know, like wine to pools or to the beach and stuff like that. So I saw this huge market opportunity of creating solutions for the adult beverage um, and no one else was doing it. Got it. So was this always like a business idea or did you want to just kind of solve this for your own personal use? Uh, so the beginning was my own personal use. I actually was doing a Google search um, to try and find like an insulated beer koozie for 16 ounce cans um, to just buy like myself. And I couldn't find anything. Like I couldn't even find a neoprene koozie, which is the most basic standard koozie there is for a 16-ounce can, um, unless it was on like Etsy, which is like custom-made. But from like a mass-produced product, there was nothing out there for that can size. Um, and so, yeah, I, like, I set out to create this mainly for myself. But then the more I, that I talked to people, I realized that this was something that everyone else needed as well. Got Did you have experience starting businesses or creating products previously? Yeah, so I've started two other businesses prior to Brewmate, um, and I've had a lot of like side projects and stuff. So um, my first company I started was sophomore year of high school. Um, so like eighth grade, ninth grade, I would buy up a bunch of broken devices off Craigslist, so like iPads, um, cell phones, stuff like that. And then I would order the parts directly from China, and I would re repair them, refurbish them, and then relist them on places like Swappa and eBay. Um, and also Craigslist. And then uh, my sophomore year, 
So I, at this point, I already had like decent connections in China for, um, you know, all the parts that I was ordering. And then sophomore year, all these repair shops started popping up in my local town. Um, so it was really taking away my business. I couldn't really find a lot of broken devices anymore. And if I did, the prices were much higher um, because people were now getting them fixed. And so I kind of evolved um, and I started importing those parts directly and selling them directly to the repair shops. Um, so that was my first company. It was called GV Supply Company. Um, and I, you know, that business itself uh, kind of started from, I went into the, one of the repair shops. I just wanted to feel it out, see what they're charging, stuff like that. I started talking with one of the owners and, um, you know, I was asking, because at the time this was a very new, like, industry. Um, and I was asking him basically, hey, like, where are you getting your parts from? Are you happy with the quality? Um, and after I spoke with him, I went and talked to other people and I kind of got the same resounding answer. It was like, we're ordering these from eBay and they're horrible quality and like our customers are unhappy. Um, and I'd always had really good success with my manufacturer. Like the quality was impeccable. I always checked them when they came in. So I, um, you know, started talking to them and asked them, Hey, like, would you be interested in having a local supplier for parts? Um, I'd be happy to supply you guys. I gave them samples to test out and, um, so I acquired my first like 10 or 12 uh, repair shops my sophomore year. And then I continued to grow that throughout high school. Um, so by senior year, I was actually on my way to Purdue for engineering. Um, first semester of college, I was running this out of my dorm. Um, we were working with about 60 repair shops roughly um, across the nation. And then um, I took, uh, so first semester of college, um, I was on Christmas break and I was really overwhelmed. I was taking 18 credit hours and also running this business, uh, at the same time. And, um, it's something I had to give. And I obviously didn't want to just like shut down my business. So I took a semester off and then, um, I ended up getting a contract with a, um, a large, uh, <clears throat> repair shop. Uh, sorry, I'm going blank right now. You know, a large repair shop franchise, uh, called CPR wireless. Um, so CPR, had at the time, I think 120 stores. We worked with our Midwest division, which was 40. Um, so we went from supplying 60 stores to 100 overnight. Um, and our revenue, you know, increased significantly. And um, so I decided to just take a whole semester off of school um, and really just focus on the business and its growth. And then in May of 2014, so this would have been the same semester that I took off. CPR offered to buy me out. Um, I sold the company to them. And then from there, I started my next venture. So I didn't really know what I wanted to do at the time. Um, I knew that, you know, I wasn't too keen on going back to school. So I was looking for other things that I could do in the meantime until I found a project that I could work on. So like a little backstory on why I wanted to be an engineer. Um, I have always wanted to be an entrepreneur, um, but I've always had more of like a creative and innovative side to me. And so like creating these companies that are just kind of like uh, white labeling or whatever, weren't really fulfilling my like personal destiny. Um, they were paying the bills, but it wasn't what I had seen myself doing. So I was going to Purdue um, for engineering. I wanted to do product development and design um, and eventually, you know, become an inventor and everything else. And then, so through my first and second companies, you know, going to China, meeting with manufacturers, working with our engineering teams, I realized really quickly that I didn't need a, deg a degree to be like innovative and creative and to create a company that's like doing big things. Um, 
And so like from each of those businesses, I always call them buffer businesses. So they were like just a buffer period of my life where it was paying my bills. You know, I haven't had a job since I was 15. So I've always ran my own companies, um, had my own side hustles to pay my bills and everything else. Um, so they're just like buffers until I found that right idea. And that's what Brumate was. So Brumate for me was like the ideal company. I had finally found an industry that was kind of untouched. I had found a product that didn't exist. I had found a product that personally, you know, I was invested in because it was something that I knew I would use and I wanted. Um, and it was also something that I was very, very comfortable in creating. I already had the idea for what I wanted it to look like and do and everything else. Um, so I took a trip to China. I went and visited three different manufacturers, um, for, you know, for Brewmate, um, had solidified on our first manufacturer. And then uh, from there, we kind of started working on the prototyping and MVP phases of the company. And yeah, so second company I can touch base on a little bit, but like long story short, I took the money that I had uh, got from selling Jeeva Supply Company. I bought a house to rehab and fix it. Um, I spent about 11 months doing that. And in the process, I had noticed that, um, you know, when I was working on the kitchen, I was working with some uh, interior designers and stuff. And they echoed the same thing that I saw was that like no one was creating really colorful and vivid uh, glass tile options for like kitchens and bathrooms. And that's becoming more of a trend that you're seeing with um, paint colors and everything else inside homes. But tile didn't re really reflect that. A lot of it was really boring. So um, I had created a company called Vici Design. That was um, a glass tile company. We imported like subway tile, um, kitchen and bath tile, stuff like that for commercial and re uh, residential remodels. And then uh, we had the largest color selection in the US. So we had over 30 different colors available. Um, I had landed contracts with Wayfair and Overstock. So we did a lot of drop shipping with them. Um, and then we worked with a lot of like local tile showrooms and did a little bit of sales on our website. But each company that I had kind of taught me new elements to entrepreneurship that I didn't know before. Um, and without those previous companies, I wouldn't have been able to start roommate. Like once I had that idea, I wouldn't have even known where to start. But because I had had, you know, experience with sourcing, experience with um, design, experience with importing, like all the the things that people look at when they're looking to start a business and it scares them. They're like, I have no idea how to do this. I don't even know who to reach out to. Um, those companies like taught me that, like it was like school for me kind of. Mm -hmm. Right. So you, you mentioned that uh, you, these buffer businesses are, or, or helpful. Could you have learned those same skills if you were to just, if you had the idea, came across the idea of brewmate, from the get-go or do you feel like those are necessary like training grounds like could brewmate have been the training grounds as well yeah so brewmate definitely could have been the training grounds but i'm afraid that you know from an innovative standpoint and also like an invention standpoint it's very like just okay so for instance if you're starting a company and you want to start a clothing brand right like it's not too hard to source a manufacturer and kind of create your own designs with them based on things that they already have built out um, and that's something I feel like you can kind of just jump into and learn as you go. Um, but for me, like the actual design portion of Brewmate was very new. So if that was my first venture combined with the fact that like, I wouldn't know how to import, I wouldn't know how to source manufacture, I wouldn't know how to do like any of the basic fundamental steps to like start a true business. It would have been very, very hard for me. Um, 
you know, and, and it would have taken a much longer, long time period for me to actually get to the point where we're at now. I got it. Um, so basically the skill sets that you learn in the, the, the buffer businesses were kind of like table stakes and then allowed you to free up the time, energy and capital to focus more on the, the, the new skills you had to learn, which is around building this, this brand new never before product. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. So uh, what, what, what are some of the most important skill sets you found that you needed to build a more consumer-facing brand? Because it sounded like before Brewmade, you were doing some B2B, and then before that, you're kind of selling these, these white-labeled, like you mentioned, solutions. Now that you need to build a more consumer-facing brand, what skill sets do you feel like you need to either to gain in order to, to be successful with Brewmate, or maybe what are some skill sets that you brought along from your, your past experience that prove very uh, vital to the success of a consumer-facing brand? Yeah, so from that perspective, that was a completely clean slate. So like that was learning from scratch. Um, I had no idea how to build a brand. You know, I, I was looking at all these other brands um, that were either in similar industries or just brands that I looked up to. And I just didn't understand how they got to where they're at. Right. And so you're trying to like write this down on paper and like put together a plan. Like, who am I trying to reach? Like, how am I going to reach them? And it just doesn't work that way. Like you, and I've learned this like over the years and anyone I've talked to has kind of echoed the same thing, but you know, in the beginning, you kind of have this idea of what the brand is going to look like. And the truth is, is like every brand that's out there has evolved like tenfold from where it started. And it's never the same company. Like you probably won't even recognize most brands from where they're at now compared to where they were maybe a few years ago. And the reason for that is because if you're truly listening to your customers, like the, the beginning customers that are kind of like buying into what you have going on, even though you don't have a brand established, you can start to form a brand around those customers. And so that's what I did. Like over time, I figured out like who our customer base is, what they react to best. And then that kind of shaped the direction that we went as a brand and shaped like our overall vibe. Um, and that was just an evolving process. Like it was learning. I think that's different for every brand. I don't think there's a true way to do that. Like the most important thing from the get go though, was, um, you know, find like trying to reach those people that were having the same pain points, you know, pitching them on the product, basically, whether it was through Facebook ads or whatever, getting them to buy the product, getting their feedback, and then using that to kind of dial in what your brand voice is like. What are people reacting to? What aren't they reacting to? Um, and that shapes your company. And that's just, that's over time. Hey, real quick. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Let us know what you think or what you'd like to hear more of. Now, let's get back to the interview, right? So you mentioned that you did not feel like you did not need a, a degree eventually. And you didn't you feel like you didn't need this kind of permission or certification that you could get started in this direction. How do you make sure that you have the the expertise required and not, maybe not necessarily in yourself, but in the company or the founding team or just the team in general to make sure that you guys know essentially what you're doing when you're launching, when you're building a product from scratch. So, I mean, when you're building a product from scratch, I think the most important thing is, is to find a manufacturer that specializes in the closest industry possible. So like if you're creating a new type of uh, like spandex clothing or something, right? Like you're going to want to find the best manufacturer possible that's already creating very similar products because their design team and their engineering team 
are going to know like what's possible and what's not. So if you're taking them like your sketches and your ideas and stuff, they can tell you like that's doable. This isn't. And they can kind of help you craft the right, like a manufacturable product. And that's what I did. So I had my initial sketches. I had the initial product or product that I wanted. I even had like a 3D mold or a model created by a company up in New York. Um, so when I went to China, I took this to them and basically worked with their engineering team to create a product that was actually manufacturable. Um, and I think that's the most important thing is just like aligning yourself with the manufacturer that kind of knows what they're doing. Because like, just to be honest, I mean, if I just went to a random manufacturer, like a, a steel fabrication company that didn't specialize in like my industry, um, they would have had, it would have been like a nightmare trying to get them to make this product. Um, and with the way that I did it by finding someone that aligned like very, very closely, it was a breeze. I mean, don't get me wrong. It took a long time. There was a lot of different design changes and stuff like that. But as far as like them being comfortable, like helping you create the product and as far as like my vision and how it came out, I don't think it would have been doable unless I found someone that was very close. So like for doing hardware, you're going to want to find someone that is doing something very similar. Uh, regardless of what it is it doesn't matter what product you have just try and find someone that's kind of doing something somewhere um and then generally they can like they have their own in-house teams that can really help you bring that to life and kind of set realistic expectations as to what's possible for your product and what's not and how long it would take to manufacture and what the cost would be and stuff like that right so you don't have to learn this yourself necessarily or figure it out yourself or hire someone even it's if they are your your client if you are their clients they're going to be inclined to help you make sure you're, you're successful they don't want to invest their time in something that's not going to be to have longevity so you went all the way to china to to meet with these manufacturers and i think that step is sometimes not on a lot of entrepreneurs radars like actually physically getting up buying a plane ticket and flying you know if they're from the u.s flying to the other side of the world how necessary is this for an entrepreneur like uh, to, 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 to take the step of going to China and meeting with manufacturers? Traditionally, like you, let's say you order a thousand units from your manufacturer, you'll usually have to pay around 30 to 50% upfront um, and to just for a starting base to get that manufactured. And then once it's done, you'll pay the other remaining balance before it actually ships out. And so I was able to neg negotiate 10 and 90, which means I paid 10% upfront and then I paid 90% before it shipped. Um, what that did for me in the beginning, we did a lot of pre-orders. So I could put 10% down in the, you know, the 60 days that it took to manufacture, I would work on getting all those units sold. And then I would use that money to pay off the remaining 90% balance. Um, because I didn't have the 30 or 50% upfront to like invest in this in the beginning. And I told them, I was like, Hey, listen, like we'll do a couple trial runs on this. Um, if I can prove to you that I can do this, then, you know, we'll continue to do this until we get to a better point. And so I did like each time we did these pre-orders, it turned out really well. Um, and over time we've completely changed that. So now like we have a huge line of credit. I don't even have to pay anything until it's been here landed in the warehouse. And then I have 30 days to pay it off. So like over time I've been able to negotiate, negotiate, negotiate. And because of that, our business has been able to flourish. We've never had to take any investment. Um, we've never had to take like any give away any portion of the business. Um, and I don't think I would have been able to do any of that without going there physically and meeting with them and building those relationships. Got it. So building the personal relationships was the biggest the win for you for doing this. Maybe the question then is around timing.
How much of the business or product do you feel like you need to have realized or developed before taking this step? Because it might not, you might, you might have like, you know, 10 ideas. You can't fly China for every single one, right? How do you know how far along your business before it makes sense to go out and meet with manufacturers? So when I, I went to China first to, um, in my previous businesses, I had already been to China. So this wasn't my first time going. Um, at this point when I went to visit, it was to visit a few different manufacturers. I just wanted to see what the facilities look like, um, what type of clients they were working with and stuff like that. That was to figure out who I wanted to work with. I didn't visit, uh, like once I figured out who I was going to work with, I didn't visit again until we were at a place where we were ready for like actual production. Um, and so the timing between that was basically creating like a very crappy prototype that I worked with their engineering team to make. Um, so like, just to give you an idea, the end mold, uh, that we ended up using like at the very end for most of our products range from like 25 to $30,000. The prototypical mold that I used was only three. And so what they did was they just created a very no frills design that worked with 16 ounce cans. Um, it served its purpose. It didn't look very good. But they also, I again negotiated with them. You know, generally you have to order like a thousand plus units. I negotiated 500 units uh, for our first run, so it was only at like a few thousand dollar investment total. Um, I got that in. I started running Facebook ads. I started talking with local breweries that were selling 16 ounce cans to see if they put this on their shelf for their customers. Um, and a lot of this I did before we actually pulled the trigger on production, um, especially like working with the breweries that I had already had a few different brews that committed to uh, like basically stocking this on their shelves and pushing it to their customers um, to get their feedback on the product itself and see if it's something uh, that, you know, we wanted to really invest like this, this large sum of money into. Um, and that is what like generally is called like your MVP. So it's the minimum viable product. It's proving the concept um, before you go into like a large manufacturing run or, waste a bunch of money on a product that may not sell. And so the only real way to do that is, uh, there's two different ways actually. One is creating a really like generic basic version um, that kind of does the main core concept. So in our case, that was holding a 16 ounce can. Um, or you can do, when we did this for one of our other products, um, we actually had a digital render created. And then we had like lifestyle imagery and stuff created with those digital renders. And then we ran uh, Facebook ads for those and then drove them to a launch uh, pad. And then from there, they just inputted their email. And basically it said, we'll let you know when this is ready to launch. Um, and so that was for our next product. That was the wine slater. And this was kind of the same thing. So timeline here was we started working on the minimum viable product for the hop slater. Um, got those 500 units in. They sold out in like two weeks. So like concept proven for the most part. All the feedback I got was great, um, you know, pointed out a lot of things that I already knew, you know, that were flaws in the design and stuff. And again, this is just a generic version. Um, so we started working on and this is when I went to visit again. I started working with the design team there to create the finished product. Um, so the initial concept for the Hop Slater Trio was to just fit 16 ounce cans. Our final product was actually um, designed to fit 16 ounce cans, 12 ounce cans. So as an adapter. And then we also created a lid. So uh, we patented this process, both design and utility. But uh, we own the patent on the idea of using a koozie as a drinking vessel. 
So our hops later can be used as a pint glass or as a beer koozie. You can actually pour the drink directly inside and it comes with the lid. And in order to do that, like we, I mean, we worked on 12 different uh, variations of this. So tons and tons of time went into doing that. And we didn't actually launch it for another year. And in the meantime, I didn't want to just shut down the company. I had all these other ideas I wanted to work on. So I picked the easiest one. Um, I met with our design team. I said, here's all the things that I want to do. Which one's going to be the cheapest and easiest to make? And they said the wine slater. So the wine slater is our wine canteen. It holds a full bottle of wine and keeps it cold for 24 hours. Um, they basically said, hey, listen, like this is going to be super easy to make compared to all the other things you want to do. And um, you know, we'll work with you again on like small minimums. And we'll also um, comp 50% of the mold cost for this one. Like we really like this. We think it'll work. We'll comp 50% of the mold cost. So for me, that was like a no-brainer. It's like, okay. So, you know, obviously we're still working on the Hopslater design. I need to be bringing in some type of revenue. In the meantime, I can't just like, you know, I, I was running my other company at the time, but I still wasn't pulling a paycheck. And I was investing a lot of money into Brewmate as well. And uh, so... What I did for that was I had them create 3D renders. Then I worked with the designer to get like all these lifestyle images created. Um, and I started running the lead generation as I was telling you about. Um, I collected 7,000 emails. So we placed an order uh, in November, sorry, placed the order in August. It finished in November. There were some issues that we had, um, but that was for 7,000 units. And then we launched it in November. So November 23rd of 2016 is our first true production launch. So that was 7,000 units and it sold out in around 14 days, like two weeks. Uh, we were completely sold out of everything. And that was mainly attributed to, so I was hardly running any Facebook ads. I think we only ran like maybe $5,000 in ads uh, collectively after we had collected those emails. Um, so those 7,000 emails that we had collected, basically, I think we had a conversion rate of close to 30% that ended up buying from that list. Um, and for me, that was our first like true win. That was when I was like, you know, we had went from doing, you know, a few thousand dollars in revenue to $250,000 in revenue in the span of like two weeks. That's amazing. So you, you did, was this the approach where you got the digital render and you drove ads to the opt-in page or? Yeah. Uh, okay. So yeah. when you, is that, so is that an approach that you would continue to take in today if you were to launch future products just to get a digital render created and then drive ads to a to a, a email signup? Well, okay, so now we have a really cool tool uh, and we're one of the only brands that I know that do this, but we have a private Facebook group. It's about 7,000 members and they're all our VIP customers. So that means they've spent more than $250 with us. Um, and so now instead of having to run lead ads, we basically have this private group where we post those renders and say, hey, like, what do you think about this? What do you like? What don't you like? And so we don't have to do anything like that anymore. We basically get to use like our 7,000 best customers as a focus group for every product we launch, every color launch, we launch new product ideas, um, feedback on customer service, new website, like whatever it is, like they're there. And I interact with them on a personal level. So like, I have a few moderators in the group that are honestly just uh, employees. I give them in-store credit every month and they kind of moderate, you know, 
yeah, we have 7,000 members, so there's a lot of stuff going on. I was going to say, so for people out there that, that might, might not have you know 7,000 customers as a focus group, when you took this initial approach of driving people to an opt-in page and you were you know launching the, the product and sending them emails, what were you looking for, though, to determine if you should move forward beyond just the digital render? Like, did you look for a certain number of opt-ins or a conversion rate on the, the, the sign-up page? What were you looking for to say there, there is some potential behind this yeah so i was very new to facebook ads and i was running these myself so mind you like google degree here i was over here googling like blogs and everything else reddit posts whatever it was on how to run generic facebook ads um and for me like i didn't know a lot and i wouldn't use the same method in the future so anyone listening like this probably isn't the best thing to do but it was just about the cost to get people to input their email for me um and, you know, what I've learned over time is just because people like I got very lucky with this. Um, a lot of times Facebook can drive like low quality leads. So you might get, you know, 10,000 emails, but you may only get a conversion rate of like 1%, 2%. We've seen that with other brands that I know. Um, in our case, like I got 7,000 emails and, you know, in my mind, that was a win. That was like, wow, 7,000 people stand behind this product and like want to buy it. So I ordered 7,000 units. That was the logic I used. Mind you, again, we hadn't really launched any product like this previously. So I didn't know the rules or like what to even look for. So for me, it was just like, we're getting these. I think I only spent like five or $6,000 um, to get those 7,000 emails. So like it was very cheap. Um, and, you know, in terms of what I was reading for what was good, like we were doing like way above what was normal for a lead generation. And so that was just a win in my mind. Um, would I recommend other people doing the same? To an extent, I mean, it's kind of like the Kickstarter model, right? Like people who use Kickstarter and Indiegogo, a lot of them are using 3D renders um, and they're using Kickstarter and Indiegogo to prove the concept so they can like fund. And it's basically like a pre-order, but it, you're funding the idea, you're funding the manufacturing, you're funding the molding, but you're also proving the concept. So they're not taking the risk of ordering, you know, 10,000 units and then figuring out how to sell them later. They're making sure that people actually want the product in the beginning. So like Kickstarter and Indiegogo might like from my point of view <clears throat> might be a better option. I haven't worked with those platforms. Um, my biggest thing with them was just the revenue that they took away. I wanted to have control over that. Um, and I wanted, I don't know. I just, I wasn't familiar with them and I, I was a little bit, more familiar with Facebook ads since I had started working with them uh, in the beginning for like the offsetter trio and stuff. So I just kind of ran it that way and it worked. Um, I wouldn't do it personally moving forward just because again, like a lot of times you get low quality leads from those. You can, people do really well with them. A lot of people even do those for Indiegogo and Kickstarter campaigns. They'll run lead generation campaigns on Facebook. Um, but for the most part, like I, honestly would just recommend getting out there and talking to your ideal customers. Like people are very scared to um, kind of tell people about what they're working on because they're scared they're going to steal it or whatever the issue is, or it's just not ready to show people. It's so crappy. Like I'm not hundred percent sure on it yet. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, so how, how do you know, how do you make sure that Facebook is not just driving cheap, leads and instead like driving actual buyers onto your email list or things are there things that you can do based on your experience 
Yeah, kind of. So you can do interaction uh, campaign, email campaigns. So like, let's say you collect a thousand emails first, you can send out an email blast to those customers and see what like the open rate is, what the interaction rate is. Um, you can run like surveys, whatever it is, just to see like how interactive these people are. If you like, let's say you send out an email to a thousand people and like your open rates like 1% or like 5% and then like your interaction rate or whatever it is that you're doing is super, super low, then you know that those are kind of low quality leads. There's not a great way to figure out if they're going to convert into customers. But the idea behind it is that like if they are actually opening your emails and interacting with you, then they subscribe to your email for a reason. Like they are generally interested um, in your product or whatever you're offering. And that's kind of the like low level way to test. Um, But you can't just like apply that and go, well, you know, 10% open the emails. That means 100 people want to buy the product because that may not be how it works. Um, But that is like a very like good way just to kind of gauge what kind of traffic you're getting. And you can do that like every week. So you can kind of switch up the lead generation campaign that you're doing. Um, and then test like the segregated data. So like, you know, if you were advertising to one audience and you collected 300 emails, then you can segregate that into one email list. And then you started advertising to another audience and you can segregate that to another email list. And then you can send all of them emails, see what the open rates are, the interaction rates, whatever. And then kind of figure out what audience is responding the best and then scale from there. So there's like different ways to do it. Um, but I still think like aside from that, from a low level, before you even start doing that, just talking to the customer. So like figure out where your customers would be, whether it's on an online forum or like a subreddit or whatever, and just like pitch people the product. No one's going to steal your idea. So just pitch people like, hey, I'm starting to work on this. Like most people are going to be super supportive and they're going to be honest. Like they'll tell you if they think it's a bad idea or if they think it's a good idea, but it should actually be doing this or whatever it is. Um, But that's like a very low level way. Other ways to do it. So I went on to Amazon and I looked for similar products um, and just read Amazon reviews. So I would read reviews all over the web, whether it was Amazon or wherever, um, for either what people were doing wrong with products that existed or for product ideas. So like a lot of customers will comment on Amazon and go, like, this is great, but I wish it did this. And I compiled a bunch of data from that. Like, okay, what don't people like? And then also, what are people looking for? Um, and that was how like, the, I shaped a lot of the products that we have was just based on customer feedback in the beginning because I didn't have like this big customer base. I didn't have a private Facebook group. Um, so I had to be crafty. Like I posted on Reddit. I posted in subreddits, like the beer subreddit. I posted in like, um, uh, this is why I'm broke. Uh, I posted it um, just in general, like I think technology, a few other places, uh, the entrepreneur subreddit, like all over Reddit. I went on Amazon. I looked at reviews for hours and hours and hours and compiled data on like what people liked and didn't like. I read Google reviews. I went onto websites and read blogs on like what people were like just search for keywords that were related to the pain points that I noticed. And I compiled all this data and basically that for me proved the concept uh, even before I started doing the lead generation campaigns because I wouldn't have invested the time to do those if I wasn't confident in the first place. So that wasn't really the first step. The first step for me was proving the concept. Second step was to start doing lead generation campaigns before we actually placed the order. Um, and then we did the, you know, the pre-orders to fund everything. Um, so kind of like a Kickstarter model, but without Kickstarter. 
uh, from that perspective and then use that to fund that, got them in before Christmas, shipped them out to everyone before Christmas. Um, and then, yeah, that was like the beginning. Yeah. So you, you're saying like before you even invest a bunch of, bunch of time and money into driving a bunch of leads, like start by just talking to customers and you mentioned a bunch of uh, subreddits. Were there any other places that you went either online or offline that worked well for you to get customers talking to you, giving you feedback? No, I didn't find anything specifically related because it's hard for like the adult mm-hmm. beverage industry. There's not a lot of good forums. I went on to a couple beer forums um, and I did, you know, do a couple posts and those like Beer Advocate, I think was one of them um, and just post feelers there. So like if you can find a forum that is like directly related to um, the product that you're trying to launch or is like your ideal demographic, then like that's a good place. But you have to be really careful. Like you don't want to sound chilly like People don't like people that are coming in there and they're trying to sell you things. So you have to be honest, like, hey, you know, I'm a young entrepreneur. I'm trying to create this product. Um, here's the the pain points that I think it will solve. Like, what are your guys' opinions on this? That's the type of post that do really well. If you come in after you already have the product and you're like, hey, buy my product. This is what it does. People aren't supportive of that. But people are supportive of, like, innovators. And they're supportive, for the most part, Um, of people who are like out there trying to shape, uh, reshape the way people do things. And so a lot of times you'll find like these forums are great tools. Like, and especially you don't want to make your first post about that either. Like I was active, uh, in all the subreddits that I was in commenting, interacting with people. So like people saw that I wasn't just there to ask one question and leave. Um, cause that doesn't feel very like real either. Right. People Mm -hmm. don't want to come in, get their advice and leave. Um, so you really have to kind of be careful on how you do things like that. But as long as you're genuine and you're there and people realize that you're there just to kind of get their feedback and you're not trying to sell them anything and you're genuinely curious and you're trying to solve something, like you'll get good feedback. Um, and so for me, I know I kind of jumped around, but like that's what I did in the beginning um, with the Hobsolator and everything else before I even started doing the lead generation campaigns. It was just different because with the Hobsolator, after I had gotten the feedback, I decided to do the MVP. Um, but that was because I knew that I didn't have the money yet to like pay for the molds for the final product. With the wine slater, it was a cheaper mold to create and it was much easier. So I had the money to do the molds and they were going to help me on the mold costs. Um, so I was basically in a position to place an order, but I didn't want to place an order without proving that people actually wanted it first. And I had no idea how many to order. And everything else, right? So that was why I did the lead generation campaigns because I was out there talking to people. I already knew they wanted it on a small scale, but I had to prove that people wanted it on a large scale before I placed this order. Um, and so those campaigns kind of did that for me. Like Makes sense. I collected those emails, and um, you know, we didn't send out any test emails. I didn't really test any of that. I didn't know how to do a lot of that. Again, learning process, um, and it worked out well. <laughs> Uh, hindsight's obviously twenty twenty. That could have been a disaster. Um, so just you know, right? I mean, I like that approach of it, that is not enough to get that customer on your list, but then see how much further you can take them. See how much further you get them to commit to learning more about your product and 
interacting with your emails, maybe even driving them to a pre-sales page or something like that if you wanted to really get it as far as possible to find out they would want to trade their dollars for your product. So you mentioned that you're going in, going out there, talking to customers, and this is super important, I think, that what you're bringing up. What kind of feedback, or was there any feedback that really sticks out in your head that changed the direction of the business or the product? Um, so feedback itself, not really, um, in terms of the product, but what happened was, is, um, you know, I was originally running those Facebook ads for the hops later and stuff like that to get rid of those 500 units and like get our first like few hundred customers on board. And it was really expensive to acquire the customers for the hops later. And when I started selling the wine slater, it was really cheap. Um, and over time, what I realized was, and so in, in February of 2017, we launched our insulated wine glasses. Um, and this only further proved my theory was that women were much, much cheaper and invested uh, to advertise to, and they're much more invested in the brand. Um, and so that's what shifted the direction of the company from, you know, obviously I'm a male. I understand the male demographic fairly well. Um, and so my, my main idea was like creating all these different beer products for men. And like, that was going to be, you know, like we were going to be a very like masculine company and we were going to have products for women too, but that wasn't going to be the main focus. And then over time, uh, every single time that we would do a pre-order or a launch for anything that was related to like wine, it did so well. Like it was super cheap to like drive these conversions. The customers went bonkers over the product. Like we would get like 20,000 shares on posts on Facebook. Um, and that to me was like, okay, you know, I had been advertising to the wrong demographic the whole time and I switched the whole direction of the company. Um, we make products for everyone, but if you look at our website, at our social media, who we actually cater to is largely women. Um, men love the product, but men are very hard to get on board to make an impulse purchase like this. Um, with women, it's easier to kind of get the initial conversion and then we can build that like brand rapport with them to where they're invested in the brand and they're telling friends and family about the brand and they're buying products for their husband or they, their husband has seen their products in use um, or their significant other, whoever has seen these products in use and is like, hey, like I want one of these too or whatever it is. And we've kind of built out the brand that way. Um, and now, you know, obviously that's changed. We advertise to both men and women. Um, we have like a very large audience pool now. But in the beginning, like as a small company, you kind of have to do what's most efficient. And for us, you know, we didn't have investment or anything like that. So for us, it was like, how can we drive the cheapest conversions possible and make as much money to continue to grow? Um, and that's why we went the direction we did. So the customer feedback was more about customer reaction to the type of ads we were running, um, the different copies we were running, the visuals. And what we just noticed was that women were reacting to the brand and they loved it. And so that was the direction we decided to go. Got it. So it was much easier and cheaper to get the sale with this new demographic. So you pivoted the marketing towards towards women. So when you do have to change this up because you were initially marketing to yourself, right, into the, the, the demographic pool that you were in, now you're into new territory that you 
maybe didn't know as much about. How did you, I guess, bridge that gap? Like, I'm not, what did you, I'm assuming the content is not going to be a lot different, the content that you maybe never created before. How did you make sure that you were able to kind of gracefully land into this new demographic and, and the way that you're messaging and marketing to a new demographic? Yeah, so it wasn't really an overnight change. In the beginning, you know, we were marketing to, only to men. Um, then we started marketing to both men and women when we launched the Wine Slater. And when we were looking at all the data, the women were, you know, converting at a much cheaper rate. And so what we started to do was gradually shift more of our marketing dollars and our campaigns towards like a female audience. And with that, we just started like we would run different campaigns. We'd run some for men, some for women, some for men and women um, with different copies, visuals, whatever. And just over and over and over, it kept proving our theory that like women, you know, they love our brand. Like they, they, uh, they just resonate with the brand. Um, they understood the direction that we were going and what we were trying to solve. And so it was just an evolving process. I mean, we didn't fully completely transfer over to like a very feminine company for almost a year. So it was like an evolving process. Um, it wasn't overnight. It was just something that we noticed over time and we slowly changed our copy and visuals to match what was working. Um, you know, if we had a visual that was geared towards women and it worked really well, then we would continue to try and create things similar to that, um, and recreate that for different products or new product launches. Um, same thing with our copy, like we keep track of all of our best performing copy and then we try and emulate that, uh, in our other products and stuff. So, for us, it was just a slow process uh, and bridging the gap was more about just trial and error and figuring out what works and what people are resonating with and what they're not. Um, and over time, we just figured out that women were our target demographic. Uh, and it was largely like the gift buying demographic, which is um, like 30 to 55. So. So you didn't basically didn't have a perfect right right off the bat when you made this this switch. I'm sure it's like a process where you were creating things that you maybe you thought the demographic would like, and some things worked, some things didn't. Over time, you refined that. Um, so you, I think this is a really important point because there's two sides to this, right? One is that you should, as an entrepreneur, it's your job to have ironclad vision. Nothing changes that you move forward and don't kind of flip flop back and forth. And you're saying that what really made a big difference for your business, what probably led to the $20 million, $21 million in sales last year was your ability to recognize that there was a new market that was way easier to, to, to get access to. How do you know, what signs are you looking for and to determine if you just stay the course versus adapting? Okay. So you know, a lot of people say that like as an entrepreneur, you have huge risk to fail. And I don't believe that. I think that every entrepreneur has uh, micro failures, like a lot of micro failures, which are kind of like me marketing to men. That was a micro failure, right? Then you have like complete failures, which are like you're ignoring all of the warning signs and you're just hell bent on advertising to this one demographic or whatever it is. And you're not willing to change your vision, even though all the signs are telling you that you're wrong. That's when you see people like catastrophically fail. Um, as an entrepreneur, I think that it is your, I think it's your duty to have, you know, that vision, stick with the vision, but you have to be willing to pivot and everything else. So for me, I knew I wanted to create all these insulated drink containers for the adult beverage community, but I was fluid in terms of 
being able to change the direction in every other facet of the company. So if I got wind from customers that we were doing something wrong, uh, or our data said that we were doing something wrong, I was immediately trying to figure out what we were doing wrong and how we can fix it. Um, and over time, like, and that's what I was talking about in the very beginning of this was, um, you'll never recognize the brand like a couple years after you start it because of those like minor changes over time that you're constantly making. And you'll see that with almost every company, like they're completely different because they, over time they're figuring out like, okay, this audience doesn't work. This audience does work. Um, these types of visuals don't work. These visuals do work. This is our target audience. Here's what they like to see. And over time you almost establish like a brand book, like, and we have an actual brand book. It's like 50 pages long, but it's all the things that we know people love about our company. Um, and those have just been over time, just listening to customer feedback, um, you know, gauging their reactions, looking at the data. And for us, that's how we kind of shape that. Um, you just have to be willing to listen. Like your customers, especially the beginning ones, are always going to be very vocal. Like they'll send you, and especially if they know you're a new company, they'll feel much more open to reach out to you and say, hey, I got this product. I know it's new. I really like it, but here are the things that I don't like about it. Um, that's kind of the product phase. So that's that's the feedback that you need to listen to to create the perfect product. Um, but you also need to listen to the customer in terms of like looking at how they're reacting to your visuals, whether it just be through like what you're posting on Instagram or Facebook or how your ads are performing. And this isn't directly talking to the customer, but this is more seeing how they're interacting with your brand. So like if you post 10 things on Instagram and you see one post is doing, you know, super, super well and the rest aren't, look at that post and go, okay, what about this made everyone interact with us on a much higher scale than they did with everything else? And then take that and try and emulate that in every future post that you do. And if you can like use that mindset in every facet of your business, like you'll be successful. I mean, that that's the the one thing every person I've ever talked to, their business, again, changed drastically. And it was just because they're willing to change and they're willing to listen. They're willing to take criticism. Um, that another thing, like to be very humble and open to the idea that you're, the product you're starting out with isn't going to be the product you're going to end with. And it's also probably, honestly, like not very good. And people are going to tell you that. And you can't get like hurt by that. You have to understand that nothing's ever perfect on the first try. And the only way you can reach perfection is by listening to that customer feedback to create the perfect product. Got it. So when you say listen, it, sometimes it means them telling you directly by emailing, calling, customer support things, or sometimes it's the data, like the sales all of a sudden are way easier to get. And sometimes it's just lots of engagement on your post. And then it's up to you as an entrepreneur to determine or infer what is it about this that took things off. Is that covered kind of the basis for where you listen for customers? Yeah. Even like Amazon reviews. Like I know a lot of people are sketched to put their product on Amazon in the beginning um, just because they don't want those low quality reviews. But if you can kind of convey that it's a newer product and you put like version one or whatever, people generally will leave bad feedback. That's fine because you can release a new product with a different SKU uh, and call it version two or like whatever it is. It's new and improved. But you can use those reviews to gauge like what people like and they don't like about the product. I did the exact same thing. Um, but then on the flip side, yeah, I mean, you should be in any product that you're launching, you should be an expert at it. Like you should already know the industry better than your customer. You should know what they want. 
but you're not going to know everything, right? And so it's your job to kind of look at everything collectively and figure out what you're doing right and wrong. And yeah, you have to infer, but like you should be able to do that if you are truly an expert at like the industry that you're working in. Like you shouldn't just start a company just to start a company. Like it should be something that you're passionate about and you know about because if your customers know your product better than you do, like that's a recipe for disaster because they're just going to be ripping you apart constantly. And that's kind of okay. Um, I mean, if that, like, if you're in that position and you did start a company um, or a product, created a product that you didn't know a ton about and your customers just ripped it to shreds, you can still use that data. Like, okay, I don't, they know more about it than I do. I need to reeducate myself. But now you can use that, that feedback to continue to create a good product and continue to learn. Right, going back to the listening and learning. That's 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 awesome. So brewmate.com is the website. What, I'll leave you with this last question. What has to happen this year, 2019, for you to consider the year a success? So last year was kind of a year of growth. Um, with that, you know, we went from $2 million in 2017 to 21 in 2018. And we did that without any investment. So a lot of that was taking um, things like Shopify capital loans, PayPal loans, um, all these different avenues that were willing to offer us money based on our historical sales data, um, where like a traditional bank wouldn't because we weren't old enough as a company. Um, And because of that, like our profitability suffered. Um, We were so focused on growth. We weren't really focused on profitability. This year, it's about like safe growth and profitability. Um, and we're still doing new testing. We're testing out podcast ads and a few other avenues. But for us, it's about really dialing in the brand. So we just launched like a new wholesale website for our retail partners. We're trying to grow that. Um, we're launching a new uh, website on brewmate.com uh, that's like much faster. And we've done a ton of testing to increase conversions. And we hired a copy team to like constantly change copy and stuff like that. So for us, it's just like we built this great brand. We have a huge following. We have great products that are on the horizon and that are already launched. And now we're just kind of dialing everything in and trying to like bring it all up to speed. Because when you go from two to 20 million, like your infrastructure kind of suffers. And there was just a lot of things that we didn't do last year that we should have. Um, so we're like redialing in all of our emails uh, for like our email list. We're redoing our website. We're launching blogs. We're doing cocktail videos. Um, we're being more interactive with our customers. We're growing our social media. Like those were all kind of things we didn't focus on last year. Last year it was like sell, sell, sell. This year, that is still a big focus for us. But now it's about like really creating like this real brand and interacting with the customers and like building something even bigger, right? Because if you can grow everything else around your company, your company will grow organically. Um, that's that's honestly kind of the plan for this year. It's just really focus on those things. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time, Dylan. Yeah. No, thank you, Felix. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Shopify Masters, the e-commerce podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs powered by Shopify. To get your exclusive 30-day extended trial, visit shopify.com slash masters.